failure is essential um, to, to any practice and, and you see a lot of that. So mm-hmm. if you go into anybody's studio, I mean, in a sense, they're not failures necessarily, but mm. they're making headway towards something. Print friends, and welcome to the 61st episode of Pine Copper Line, the internet's number one printmaking podcast. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. I release weekly podcasts with people in the print world who are doing something a bit beyond the expected. So please subscribe on your podcast listening app of choice. You can also find Pine Copper Lime on Instagram and Facebook. And you can sign up for our monthly newsletter with print news from around the world, all at pinecopperlime.com. We also have a Patreon page, where if you like this here little podcast and you want to throw us a couple dollars each month, you get very cool thank yous like stickers, buttons, and totes. Printmaking forever, shun the non-believers. Pine Copper Lime would like to announce that this episode is brought to you by our newest on-air sponsor, McLean's Printmaking Supplies, who've been dedicated to the art and artists of relief printmaking since 1979. Their small specialist team in the Pacific Northwest is the leading supplier of Japanese relief tools for printmakers in the U.S. and abroad. Their primary purpose is to help you find the materials to support you to reach your printmaking goals. Our editor, Timothy Pauschak's favorite tools are his Fatasu Ware Sankakuto 3mm V-gouge and his Josue Maruto 1mm U-gouge, both from McLean's. But you don't have to take our word for it. These tools truly do speak for themselves. So head on over to McLean's at imclean's.com to find your favorite tools and keep on carving. That's I-M-C-C-L-A-I-N-S dot com. And there'll be a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Pia Larson. Pia is a Sydney-based artist who work draws from her interest in people, place, language, and projects that engage history, culture, and geopolitics. Her practice encompasses print media, text, metal, and photography and images, sculpture, and installation environments. In this episode, we talk about growing up in Sydney, chatting with Trump supporters on interstate trains, and the project she is currently working on that examines the life of a woman she is titled I Am, who arrived in Australia in 1949 through Australia's mass resettlement scheme. She looks at I Am's life and experiences in relation to the discourses of gender, culture, and history. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare for a visit down under with Pia Larson. Hi, Pia. How's it going? Uh, I'm very well, thanks. Good, good. Thank you for joining me. And actually, in person, which is always exciting when I get to do an in-person Pine Copper Lime interview, because you've come over here from Sydney, so not, not too far to go to old Canberra. But yeah, I met you uh, at Megalo. Mm-hmm. Um, during a reception there back in the before four times when we had reception. <laughs> but I would love it if you could introduce yourself a little bit and just kind of give people a general who you are, where you're located, and what you do, generally speaking. Okay. 
My name is Pia Larson and I'm an artist um, who lives in Sydney and I've lived in inner Sydney, in the inner west uh, for over 20 years. But I um, was born and grew up around Middle Harbour, which is a, the kind of northern part of Sydney. And that was a very sort of carefree mm. childhood. I went to school in a bush bushland setting up in Terry Hills. My parents are artists, and uh, as are my grandparents on one side. So I took for granted um, an artistic and creative environment. Mm. And as a child of the 70s, the parenting was both very open and experimental, but with my parents, it was also, there's actually a term for it, benign neglect. <laughs> you were left to your own devices and, and of course that's a sort of freedom. Mm -hmm. But for me, actually, over time, that, that, or at times, that became a bit of a burden mm. because I had to make decisions for myself. And I thought, well, what do I know, you know? Yeah. But nevertheless, it was a very rich childhood and my father's Danish, so he migrated to Australia when he was 30, having met my mother in Denmark. Mm. And so there was that mix of a life in Australia uh, through my mother and then traveling back to Europe to visit the other half of who I, my genetic mm. ancestry. Mm -hmm. So that combination of being an Australian with a European background was interesting. A lot of art, a lot of art galleries, and just growing up in that milieu, a bit of a bubble. And then I also was sent to progressive schooling. So no uniform, called you just by their first name. It was that whole move <laughs> into the... I was gonna say, gosh, that sounds like an American school. I just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sort of child-centered and very respectful of mm -hmm. children and their views, which was, which was great. And then high school, and then thinking at the end of that, what, what was I going to do? I did have a bit of a sort of existential crisis, <laughs> which was, well, life could be filled with lots of things mm. or um, nothing, and it was mm -hmm. all up to me. So that I, you know, frightened myself <laughs> doing that. But I did think art was something that I'd done for the end of my high school, and I'd um, made jewellery and done print because my aunt's a printmaker. Mm -hmm. Went to Sydney College of the Arts in Sydney. There were a couple of options in Sydney at the time, but that's where I went and studied printmaking there. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear you tell that story of growing up in a bit of that bubble, because I think I had a bit of that bubble in mm -hmm. my background. You know, I went to just like a, a standard public school, not like a, a maybe Montessori might be something about the way that kind of sounds a bit like what you're talking about, like the, mm. the child-centric. The, but the town that I grew up in was extremely progressive. And it was the kind of place where, you know, even in the 1990s, it was really common for, you know, many kids in the class to refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance and for the teacher to kind of be like, right. good on you. You know, like, <laughs> where I'm sure there are places in the country, even in America, even now, where you, you wouldn't get that reaction. Yeah. And, you know, and again, you know, very supportive, very, you know, hippie, maybe for lack yeah. of a better term, you know, that, that just progressive kind of alternate thinking. And when I know when I left, 
and kind of got out into the world, it was a bit of a cultural shock mm. to realize that there are people who don't think that way, you know, who don't privilege art, who don't have these progressive ideas. And I'm wondering if you experienced a bit of that when you kind of came out the other side as well, um, when you were saying you had a bit of the existential crisis. Um, well, I think it actually, I understood that the world that I grew up in uh, well, the, the sort of networks of family and friends was different um, mm. fairly early on because mm. where my parents live is a, is a pretty conservative suburb and it's become more so. So if you're interested in the wider world, which I was and, and still am, then uh, you do come to understand that, that your name, mm-hmm. fear, um, even that was challenging for people oh, um, at the time. Yeah. Not, not, not now. So it is that... It's that sort of adjustment where you want to be in the wider world, particularly mm-hmm. as you're growing up. And in moving out to mix with other people, you, you then are challenged in, in what you have grown up with, but also then you appreciate what, what it was that, that you've had. Mm. And, and I think in a sense, what we're doing is we're carrying those values as those people are yeah. transmitting those to us. <laughs> so it's an exchange. Yeah. So it's not saying that one is right. I think, though, a life in the visual arts... I mean, my parents were very fortunate mm. because that was a period in Australia where really a lot to do with Gough Whitlam. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a very exciting time mm-hmm. culturally. That mm. was when Australia um, started investing in culture and um, established the Australia Council and boards for the different art forms. And, of course, you... Imagine that these things are just going to keep building, but but today, Australia has really gone in reverse culturally, mm-hmm. and we have a lot of political leadership that isn't interested and and actually doesn't really seem to attach much value to the creative industries as they're called, and even that's a, that's perhaps something that's problematic calling yeah. it an industry. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting just to see since I was young what's what's happened and how much harder it's become Mm -hmm. in in many ways I mean there is a much bigger creative community than there was then Mm -hmm. so that's that's a a wonderful thing so it's not as if it was it was it's the same Mm -hmm. but it's that thing where you still struggle to afford to be an artist to to find that the means to to make art and and it's just the attitudes Mm -hmm. you know what's what's considered important in Australia but for me, you go through stages, I think, as an artist where you question, well, well, if I didn't do this and if I did something else, what would that be? And I have always come back to mm-hmm. absolutely realising that I, for me it's very important being a creative person and being part of a community, absolutely. Perhaps we've become, because we've had to become much more aware of the economics of life mm-hmm. um, and so it does it, it just feels to me that the kind of politics of our time infiltrates everything it's not just subject matter right. it's something we have to grapple with um, in order to exist and keep going yeah so you you spoke a little bit in passing about having artists as parents mm-hmm. and I'd love to hear more about that experience and particularly what it sounds like you know during a time where being an artist was like very fruitful and very exciting in Australia mm. and kind of just that experience for you and how you think it might influence your current practice 
I think the main thing is that they're jewelers, they're contemporary jewelers, mm-hmm. and they have have always had a studio at home. So the division between private and work was mm. um, it was there, <laughs> but you could see the workshop from the kitchen, and we were welcome in there. So we made things and fixed things and used the tools and that sort of thing. I have a brother, older brother. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's a privilege in a way. It's a great thing to be able to watch people working and to grow up observing or, or just being together when people are working through their own creative ideas and seeing how that, how that turns out in their mm-hmm. work. So once I got to a certain age, my brother and I also helped our parents install mm. exhibitions. Mm-hmm. And when we were young, we were always taken around with them because they exhibited quite a lot in Europe and we were there too. So it felt very normal to have mm-hmm. that sort of life. And the way they work, very much influenced by travel and place. And, uh, and their practices changed over time as well but them responding to the physical environment and the built environment and mm. the drawings they did. And, and also my grandmother, so that's my mother's mother, Margot Lewis, she's an abstract expressionist painter, and she died when I was 12. And in some ways I feel what she represented and the things that she had in her home, because she lived in a house up at Emu Plains that's now a regional gallery. And she was very broadly creative and she made her own clothes and had them made, but Hmm. she also painted the fabric, dyed them. And I remember she had these, my memory is that they were platform shoes and (laughs) and she had actually painted. Uh So everything in her life, her interiors, clothes, her paintings, she was working with as a creative outlet. And uh, so what would happen is she would tell me to go and paint, uh, wash my hands and then she would paint my fingernails. So this was our (laughs) our togetherness. Yeah. Because she was a very strong and slightly intimidating individual. Yeah. But a lot of Mm colour. And I work with a lot of colour now. Mm -hmm. So that that was interesting to think, you know, that that's emerging now. Because when I was... Studying print, it was all black and white, and uh, so that was the late 80s. And I remember thinking colour had its, its, its own sort of challenges mm-hmm. and, and really is something quite different to working in black and white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I suppose just being with them and them also being very encouraging mm-hmm. of my own creative endeavours. And then I think also being in a household that had a lot of books and so there were books about art and all sorts of things but also just literature generally so my parents um, were readers so that was the other thing is that I've always been a keen reader and just thinking about that sort of world of ideas they did sort of practice a, a certain sort of modernist ethos of working with ideas that they felt with their own, so not looking to mm. art movements. And I think for me, when I was at art school, I think that was a little bit of a, a challenge that in fact I needed to open myself up more. Mm. Mm-hmm. And, and I did, but then print at that time as well and print in Sydney and print as it was taught at Sydney College of the Arts, it was another sort of bubble. For me, in terms of the practice that I established for myself, I felt that I had to un- unteach myself some of those conventions 
and the way I work is serves me best if I think about it as images and then I think about how is a print process going to serve that so I made a lot of lithographs when I was at art school few etchings you know tried all the, the processes and drawing was a very big part of of my um, artistic output but now you know as the years have gone by it's it's changed I suppose the manner in which I make imagery and work with imagery so I still consider it drawing mm -hmm. but it's not the direct drawing necessarily with you know a brush and touche and those sort of things and also access to print studios mm, yeah that's that's always been an issue in Sydney and so organizing how I how I'm going to make my work so I have a studio at home in the back garden and I do a lot of I have all my you know past works and materials and things in that space and it's wonderful and then I have to be organized in order to think okay so I've done I've done all this planning mm -hmm. here and played around with imagery that I have here do I need to go to office works and you know photocopy something up in scale what have you and then go to go to a print studio and actually then embrace that part of the process mm -hmm. so because play is a very important part of the process for me too so it's it you know there is planning there are ideas but then it's always about allowing the process to you know release what's what's going to happen definitely the question that came to mind is that a lot of people who I speak with who didn't necessarily come from an environment where they were in a studio growing up, mm. a big learning curve for them when they get into their own studio is this idea about kind of failure and how it's a huge part of the artistic process. Yes. Did you feel like that was something that you had maybe a little bit of a leg up on in learning seeing it or is it still something you had to like learn in your bones yourself with your own creative process well i don't think it was something i was conscious of learning from my parents but mm. i think failure is essential um to, to any practice and, and you see a lot of that so mm -hmm. if you go into anybody's studio i mean in a sense they're not failures necessarily but mm. they're making headway towards something Mm -hmm. And so, of course, we've got all these sort of experiments around where there's a little glimmer and then you put it to the side or it develops into something else. I think for me, the thing about print and the way that I used it is that you've got, you know, there's the paper and then you've got all the time that you're putting into preparing the matrix. And in a sense, the place of play mm -hmm. um, is something that I was reminded of as I got older that was a bit lost I think when mm. I was studying because you're, you're putting in so much time and energy to getting to that image and so the way that I work now sort of brings those things together a bit more so it's understanding that they all have a role to play in the work you make mm -hmm. and and just to allow that failure may be part of it and to have a number of things going at the same time as well yeah because I think print can tighten you up hmm interesting yeah and uh, I mean of course this is a personal thing for yeah some people it, it's it's obviously fine but in a way I, I needed to work for a number of years um, in order to understand what, what was it that I wanted to to do mm -hmm. what did I want to get out of print you know what was my imagery about and that has changed quite a lot yeah I don't I don't think the subject matter in some ways has but I think how I get there 
and how I use different processes. And also that, that when I was at art school, there was a demarcation mm-hmm. between studios. And I remember thinking at the time, why? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did a sculpture minor and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it. And so that interdisciplinary practice, I think that's one of the great things about today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because yeah. that's one of the, the questions I had to probably get to a little later on is like that interplay between the sculpture work and the printmaking. Yeah. But before we get there, I'd love to talk a little bit about the meat and potatoes of your practice itself in terms of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. So like I mentioned before, I met you at Megalo and you'd done a residency there. And when you were there, you were doing work a lot um, kind of about the immigrant experience in Australia and also, you know, the ways sort of gender plays into that and politics and all these different kinds of things that I mm. found really interesting. Mm. Mm. But I'd love to hear you sort of speak to it maybe kind of more broadly because you said it sounds like you've been interested in these themes for a while mm. and then maybe we can kind of talk specifically about what you're working on currently. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, as we're talking the show is being installed in mm-hmm. Mildura. Yes. And so they keep sending me images and <laughs> And it's looking good. Uh, so that's exciting because it's been a two-year project. Yeah. Yeah. So I, my residency at Megalo was focused on this project, mm-hmm. on, on the work for it. And the subject is um, a woman called M. And, um, and the reason that she's referred to as M is that if, if work is about a woman or has the as a woman as a focus mm-hmm. often it's a bit it's the same in films if mm. you if you if you can identify that with it as a person with that with the subject as a person it tends to to be diminished right into this sort of oh it's a it's a you know it's a personal story about her life yeah and although a lot of the subject matter and the things the events and things that happened that I've used in the work have come from her life they are also um, things that women mm-hmm. experience and women of her era because she came to adulthood in the 1950s mm-hmm. so it's a story that is applicable more broadly and also I think anonymity was helpful for me because I did notice that I was felt a bit I was being overly careful as mm-hmm. if I had to you know and of course I want to be mindful of of material that's hers but also then just to be as an art as an artist to just be able to play yeah. with that as well to see where that where that takes me mm-hmm. and it's it's it is abstracted so the works are quite abstract they have a figure in there but the figure is always veiled behind other layers and shapes and colors and things so that's my issue mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she she worked for my parents mm-hmm. um, uh, for 30 odd years and mm-hmm. one of her responsibilities was looking after me as a child. Mm-hmm. And so that's where the, that's the personal connection mm-hmm. and we remain friends, she and I and my mother and brother um, until she died mm-hmm. uh, in 2014. And I didn't, I knew that she had migrated from Estonia but I didn't I didn't really know a lot and I have subsequently got to know one of her daughters and interviewed her and so have got a, a much bigger story and but then it turned out that I looked up the National Archives, Australian National Archives and 
she because she came through a migration scheme uh, post Second World War to Australia, mm. the actual ship and the journey they took it's documented mm. and it's in the National Archives. So they so they're part of Australia's archival history mm-hmm. and um, and their identity cards are in there as well. So I sought permission and was able to reproduce that. So it really is the personal and the the bigger story yeah. of Australia and because migration is is Australia, that's the foundation of Australia. Yeah. I then had a lot of material that I could use. Um, but she came to adulthood in the 1950s and um, as we know that was not a great era for women. <laughs> <laughs> After the sort of liberation of wartime right you know employment yeah. and opportunities mm-hmm. and making their own money it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then it was decided mm-hmm. that the men uh, there's actually a work i've called it men's dreams and it's it's about that the 1950s pushed women back into the home mm-hmm. in essence yeah and that their choices were very limited and as a migrant she arrives here as 17 been in a refugee camp in germany she comes with her father and mother and younger sister and older brother and very quickly well part of the migration scheme was that you had to accept to work for two years anywhere the government sent you so she and her brother came to Canberra and she started working in um, domestic work as a cleaner and she then met a a fellow migrant and they moved to Sydney. She then continued to work in low paid work and had nine children. And actually at a certain point over the ensuing years, she became a single parent. Mm. But just that period in the 1950s, you know, she starts having children and women, I think it's hard for us to, to imagine the limitations on women that you, you, couldn't, you couldn't survive. I mean, how, how could you? you? Yes, you could work in low-paid work, but socially, there's sort of disapproval if you were to leave a marriage or live as mm-hmm. a single person and that women were, you know, they lost their jobs once they got married. So the idea that somehow if she had wanted to, she, she could have had a different life, I, I question that. Yeah. And that, hence the title, Dreams mm-hmm. of Another Life, mm-hmm. because I think she did have, as we all do, have dreams of of a life that we would like and then you have to deal with reality yeah I say I I think about all the time the staggering difference that my life has being able to choose if and when to have children like it's it's one of these things that you just take kind of for granted growing up and then every once in a while the emotional reality of it hits me Mm. that it's like Oh my gosh like because <laughs> I'm turning 36 this year and it's like I you know never never had a kid yeah. by choice and that was an option like and then yes. all the experiences that I had you know my my adult life that would have been exceptionally changed mm. if it had been like well you know you're gonna you're gonna have to get married because if, uh, if you're gonna be having sex you're gonna be having children mm. and you need mm. a guy mm. In that situation to take care of you because you can't really work like it's it's mind-boggling that that was the reality of people that I've met you know people like my grandmother 
um, who, you know, who, and she was an artist and she, you know, before she got married, she had this life in San Francisco as an artist. And, oh. you know, I just imagine it must have just been a beautiful time. You know, the 19, 1940s San Francisco, I'm sure right. it was just yeah. gorgeous. Yeah. And, but yeah, it was, it was these huge decisions. And it's not saying that women still don't make decisions about like motherhood and career now, because mm. that certainly still exists, mm. but not in the same way. No. That women and in a, in a way... Yeah. I think it's a good sign that we kind of have difficulty comprehending. Yeah, yeah. That, that shows, in fact, how normalised it's become. Yeah. Um, that, in fact, we do have a lot more choices. But it, it is interesting because I have two children mm -hmm. and certainly when they were, well, when I was pregnant and because I wanted to keep on with my practice mm -hmm. and um, it's a challenge and the people around you aren't always <laughs> there maybe they can't comprehend how difficult it is because mm. you you really have to ask for help and i actually one my child was in the pram and i gave a talk at um, the university of western sydney and it was about work and being a new mother and one of the things i said was that it's really important to ask for help and not not feel that there's something wrong with that and and apparently I, I got feedback later that there were a number of um, women in the audience who really appreciated that mm. but there was an older academic who who was who attacked me she was very angry mm. and she said I did it yeah this way I got no help and it's very interesting yeah that I have noticed that that there I think that Quite rightly, there's a, I think for older women, sometimes they realise how hard they did it. But instead of celebrating the fact that women do have more choices, they, they've, their resentment then is fed into attacking younger women mm -hmm. for their supposed privilege or luck mm -hmm. or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so it, it, it is interesting. But then having children for me as well really uh, crystallised some of those topics that we're talking about for mm. women and uh, an understanding the way that society perceives women and particularly if you have children mm -hmm. and that, that that's a box and that I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel that I fitted into that and so that resistance is not always met with <laughs> open arms. Yes, yes. So I had an experience where I made work about breasts and breastfeeding and I ended up showing it in the birth centre at King George V hmm. Hospital and the, it was in a space that the midwives uh, ran their um, workshops with or you know courses with pregnant women but it had been mooted to be as part of lactation week mm -hmm. and so the head head of nursing and the lactation the head of lactation came to my house and looked at my work and they were very polite <laughs> and then they and then later on they said oh no there's there's no room for the mm. work and so i this is where naivety is a good thing yeah so i went oh, oh okay right and so then i <laughs> went to the birth center and then the head of the birth center said do you want to know what what really happened and she yeah. said they they didn't like your work and mm. they found it they found it confronting because it wasn't 
beautiful images of right. women with child at breast. Yeah. Now, of course, I thought my, my work was, I, I think it is, it's a celebration <laughs> of the body. It's not, but, of course, it didn't conform to the construct that, that they wanted to, yeah. to telegraph. Yeah, it's, um, I don't actually have a lot of close friends who've had, who've had kids. I think part of it is coming from like a bit of that hippie town, you know, a little bit where there's a lot of like, I'm not having one of those, the world's burning, you know, <laughs> yeah. kind of attitude. But the, so I, I don't have a lot of close friends, of close female friends who've, who've had children, but the ones I know who have, who were close enough to have the honest conversations about, it's amazing to discover secondhand how sanitized the experience of pregnancy and breastfeeding is mm. and in you know sort of broader society that it's that it's this beautiful natural thing and you know you always you always just look like you've just swallowed a bowling ball and you're very comfortable <laughs> and you know and it's incredible you know to actually hear like you know like well like my my nipples are bleeding and i'm peeing myself all the time now you know <laughs> which and i think also because we don't see that side mm. it becomes shocking and then therefore seen as a negative mm. whereas i think if you could shift the lens on it it would be like that is incredible. Like the things that your body has done and the things that your body mm. is doing mm. to sustain the life of a new human, mm. that can be beautiful in and of itself as well. But because it's sort of like, oh, you have to sort of shut that part of <laughs> the, the corporeal experience away. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I love that idea that, that you were creating work that that they found confronting because maybe they should be confronted by it. Uh, well, you know? <laughs> but it's interesting the things you're saying because my partner said that when, you know, recovery after the birth and so mm -hmm. on, and he said he, he went into a room in the hospital and there were these three women who were, were, were had just given birth but were watching <laughs> another sort of harrowing, well, I mean, he, he found it, you know, challenging, <laughs> but they were really into watching the process again mm, of, mm -hmm. of birth and delivery and so on so in a sense um, I think women particularly around that time when you give birth we're totally into it mm, you know mm -hmm. you just because everything's new particularly when it's your first child mm -hmm. and and I, I I just talked about it with people who'd come to the house and I could see that <laughs> it was confronting but I think today it, it's it just has got better yeah that conversation that 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 it's such a big thing psychologically and the pressure on women to breastfeed and that actually breastfeeding is not something that you necessarily take to really easily right. yeah and so we had a friend who was a midwife and she'd seen her sister go through you know challenges and so she said to me this is what you need to do you need to press the button each time and check <laughs> that with the you know nurses that it's the attachments right and so on so that you get trained mm -hmm. in a sense so that whole experience then led into my master's yeah study and uh and Foucault and discourses mm. and it was actually I think I was describing something. I had a show. The show in the birth center was called Time Measured. And it was all about um, time, but also that the, the constructs that define and confine women. And my partner said, you should read Foucault. <laughs> so I, I did. And, uh, and that, that, you know, he, he expounds on those very things of 
discourses defining who you are and that mm-hmm. then you, you take up those habits and define yourself in that because we need discourses in order mm-hmm. to understand where we are and what we're doing, but they also have that constraining element. And so that was, that was really interesting, looking at my own work through that lens and doing that research and, you know, Louise Bourgeois mm-hmm. and uh, there's a British photographer, Jo Spence. Mm. I don't know if you've heard of her. She was fantastic because she also was about the construction of um, photography mm-hmm. and the use of photography to construct ideas of family and bodies and women and so on. So that, that was a very fruitful time. And out of that created a, a mammophone, <laughs> which was a, a breast impression that I'd enlarged and etched into zinc mm-hmm. and then cut into this. It, it was cut like an LP, but it had an organic edge and my brother uh, converted a, ti- a turntable. <laughs> so it has a stylus, and, uh, and the idea being is that, you know, these, these tunes that, mm-hmm. are, that are played on women's bodies. Mm-hmm. So it had the, the slang terms, and then it had the maternal terms, mm-hmm. the sort of side A and side B. So reconfiguring bodies and uh, discourses through uh, visual material, sculpture and print and paper. Mm-hmm. That's that's my yeah, I love that. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Yeah, I was thinking. Yeah, kind of to to circle back a little bit to M and the project you're working on. Yeah, Yeah. although it's great. Yeah, I was really I loved hearing how it kind of like fits into this your sort of broader interest in that the female experience and and all Mm. of that. Mm. And so yeah, so you're saying that you know M you know, came to Australia under these really specific set of circumstances, you know, which was, you know, basically as a refugee, but with that agreement that she had to work, Mm. as you said, you know, Mm. in in some sort of, you know, domestic capacity for a few years. Mm. And you wrote an article for Imprint where you talked about it a little bit more in depth. And it's interesting because it's, you know, one of the, the phrases that came up in there was breed or perish or something like that or Oh, the populate or perish. Populate or perish, yeah. Yes, so that Thank you. The, so that that was the term I think it's might have Arthur Caldwell. Yes. Yes. And uh, and he because what happened is that post the Second World War you have Australians thought of themselves as British. Mm-hmm. They didn't actually call themselves Australian. So mm-hmm. the attachment to Britain was, was that that was the motherland that was and that actually kept going and uh, and so they so Australians at the time were resistant to you know foreigners coming but what he what the government at the time recognized is that the Australian population was small and that in order to protect Australia by having a big, bigger population and also to build infrastructure mm-hmm. and build the society in all sorts of ways, he, he saw an opportunity with these displaced people in Europe. And of course, they became Australian citizens. But he, he used that term to sort of alarm the, the Australians here, is that we needed to grow the population mm-hmm. or we would perish. So that's where that... The pop, yeah, populator yes, perish. Populator perish. Um, because, you know, people had a lot of... There was, you know, 
uh, anti-Semitism. Mm -hmm. So there were limits on um, Jewish migrants who were able to come to Australia, and then you know later on the, the white Australia policy. So mm -hmm. there were things that were part of Australia's attitude to allowing migrants into the country. Mm. And it just so happened that Em and her family and a lot of other migrants were young enough so they could be used as a, you know, they would be good for a labour force. And the words in the, the literature about just how they were described to Australians, they were, they were attractive. Well, and also that, that I visited um, Bongilla, the migrants referred to called Bonagilla, because that fits within the, mm. the way Europeans speak, mm -hmm. European language, mm -hmm. but it's actually Bongilla, mm. which is an indigenous word and it means where waters meet. And that is the biggest migration centre in Australia, and that took in the bulk of migrants until 19, in 1970s. And they, when they, they came on a ship from Europe, they went, uh, they arrived in Fremantle, and then the ship arrived in Melbourne, and then a train took them out to, to Bangilla, which is just outside Albury, pretty remote. And there was, what you realise is how much marketing was used to reassure the Australians who were here and to, um, to, to be the, the, the kind of conduit between the new, who they would be new Australians and, and those who are already here to, to make it seem that it was a positive, hmm. not a negative, because there was an arrangement with unions at the time that migrants wouldn't be given jobs that then could be reserved for the Australians who were here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, it was a very um, kind of controlled thing and marketing was a big part of that, hence those slogans. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, they kept adjusting things um, as, as the migrants, um, the migrant, you know, groups changed because, of course, there's, there's one, uh, when people who come from war, they had their own experiences and then as, as the migrant groups changed over time, they came for different reasons. And, of course, it's about making a new life mm -hmm. somewhere else. So Em and her family had fled because of the Soviet occupation of Estonia and so there was no going back. So that idea that you... You know, you come to an Anglo country and the challenges you face in all sorts of ways to start that new life. Mm. And language is another part of it because she would have had, her schooling would have been very broken up. And yet, you know, she was 17 when she arrived, but she didn't get any more schooling. So that wasn't something that was provided. There were, there were English lessons and rudimentary things in, in the migration centres, but it was always short, expected to be short, six right. or seven weeks, and then you would be shipped off. So I, when I was working at Megalo for the residency and I had brought with me four very large lino cuts that had been laser cut with images that I had cropped and prepared from the family archive and one of them was an identity from the identity card um, in Sydney and then I worked on them further and then started um, printing with them and one of the things I've been using for a while that's really come into play with this body of work is stenciling but also blocking bits out with shapes of paper hmm. so both making prints on torn bits of paper 
and then I noticed how powerful that empty space was in the image. Mm. And so, so those two elements have, have become a much bigger part of my practice now. And I suppose for me as well is that you have the matrix and then you've got those offsets, the prints. And there's a huge scope with the actual printing. And I really enjoy that play with printing over things and, and just letting go of the preciousness and just going, no, I've got the paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't think about how much it costs. Yeah, that's <laughs> a key. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I realize, and I remember one of my lecturers, even as an undergrad, saying, there's a point where you have to move to good paper mm. and you just have to accept that. And I thought, yeah, that's very good advice. Mm -hmm. Um, that if we keep printing on butcher's paper, you know, we get very good prints, Mm -hmm. but they're they're, they're rubbish. They're going to just fall to bits. So I'm thinking about because Anne came here through this very specific sort of regimented program, it seems like there are a lot of ephemera from the archives, you know, things like ID card and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, and other documents, which I'm guessing a lot of them are kind of in and of themselves prints. Yeah, true. Yeah. Mm. Um, And so I just thought that that was an interesting element where you're taking these kind of functional prints, these prints with this very utilitarian purpose, and you're reproducing them and, as you said, layering them and sometimes even covering up the essence of the information and the way that you're creating these different kind of elements of her life. Mm. And I guess, I wonder if you'd ever kind of thought about that element of it as as well as how it kind of weds into your prints and then how in a way, because your prints are so like, as you said, kind of like tactile and cut up, if you think of them maybe almost more like your sculpture work as well, Mm. if there's how that kind of relates to it just Mm. in terms of function and form. I think one of the things for me working with imagery and text and information from archives, as you say, it it has its own integrity. And one of the things I didn't want to do was just reproduce that history. So I didn't want it to be a nostalgic set in aspic sort of, oh yes, we're looking at history now. I Mm. wanted to somehow bring someone's life and, and the things that affected it into the present because those issues go on mm. they're still still happening mm-hmm. for refugees and migrants I mean that's a, and in fact I think the issue today um, the number of refugees around the world are equivalent to that to the millions who mm. were displaced after the second world war so it's about kind of bringing those issues into the present and I think too it was about finding a way to work with those images because they do they're very seductive you know they have the patina they have a certain look and and it's very appealing and I think that some of my strategies are to just to literally pull that apart in order to work out how to work with it and and if I think about the work that's in the exhibition there is that combination of using elements of some of the photographs and then actually bringing stenciling and relief rolls and colour mm-hmm. back in over them, you know, and the black and white as well, because that was most of the the, the documents from in the archive, um, if not all of them really, um, are definitely the 40s and 50s and 60s. It, it is in black and white, and that does have its own kind of lovely quality. 
So, so it's about understanding the value of that sometimes if you want to make sure that it is situated in the right era, then you leave it, you leave it alone. So it still needs to be black and white. So there's one of the works in the show is, it's actually, I had, I scanned images of migrant camps from around Australia and then details from my own photographs from Bangilla. And then I've torn each of them and then actually cut apertures out of them and then attached them at different corners and created a shape that hangs on the wall and it sits out. And then red twine is threading through the apertures. And, uh, and then there's a, shadows are cast through these apertures and around those edges. And they needed to be black and white. But then there is a, you know, a kind of synthesis that's going on in the process of, of handling these things because I am cropping and enlarging and one of the things I did a lot of uh, for quite a number of the works and the works in, that I used in Megalo is that the images have been expanded so you get those big dots that make the image. Yeah. So it's just teetering there where you have to be at a certain position in order for the focus to come. Mm-hmm. And I really, I really love that idea that you go close and it's just it's like oblivion. You know? mm-hmm. It's, it's a, that the sort of pixels in a sense or the elements have, have dissolved. And that's, that's, I see that as, um, you know, that we think of ourselves as these very intact things, mm-hmm. but in fact, we, we're kind of made up of a whole lot of particles hmm. that we all dissolve. Yeah, we were saying that we're intact things, but we're made up of a bunch of particles. When you were saying it, I was kind of thinking of the, of the opposite is that imposed of like you know the sort of like internal were made up of these things I was thinking of that expansiveness about how you know we don't really actually have like hard layers yes you know both in the quantum physics level we don't we don't but also we don't sort of socially we don't economically yeah, right. you know where we have a, a very very soft borders if very any borders porous. at all we're very porous <laughs> creatures yeah yeah and the, and I mean I think COVID has mm. shown that very much, which I think is a good thing. Mm. Mm-hmm. That I think a lot of the things that have been exposed to those who didn't want to accept it before, mm-hmm. that disease, <laughs> yeah. you know, that we that that the capacity to share that <laughs> right very readily, but it just shows how interconnected we are, mm-hmm. and I think that's that's one of the things that that drives my project is that the way we structure socially and economically structure our societies, that that's what divides people, Mm. that we are doing that. Mm -hmm. It's a a constructed thing. And also thinking about the fact that, you know, she worked for my parents and that, of course, enabled them to get on with their practice. But that issue in itself about women in general working for other women and men to look after their children and then if those women have children who's who's looking after them yeah so it's, it's problematic yeah definitely um and i think a lot of it you know comes from that dissolving of intergenerational housing and that kind of thing you know where when we all lived in a village somewhere some of those questions were answered because mm. it was you know it was well who can take care of my kids well you know my mother or maybe mm. even her mother mm. and that kind of thing or or you know i need to go i need to go look for some berries right now and um jane is already 
looking after three kids, I'll just pop, you know, mine in there with hers. And, and that kind of really close-knit communities that we used to live in. Yeah. Uh, I think some of those questions were, were answered. Obviously, there were other things we couldn't get done <laughs> in those settings. But, yeah, that it's like we, we so recently have this rabid individuality Mm. Um, built into our notion of self and our notion of success mm. and our notion of a meaningful life. But that is, all of that comes from just a place of extreme privilege mm. because it's, it's, you know, in order to kind of get to that, you know, you need to be in a position where to a certain extent you can outsource child rearing or outsource, you know, just domestic duties in some capacity. I think you know, and whether that's like, whether that's just daycare or, you know, being in a situation where it's safe and free to send your children to school, mm. you know, all of that is this, is this, is this privilege for us to end up on the other side of having what we've defined as like a meaningful life, right? Where you, you have this self agency that you somehow fulfill in some way, mm. you know, and you have kids and you have a partner and you, you know, you can have it all and lean in and all of that. Well, I, th- I think actually that's a very interesting point because I feel, you know, my mother was a feminist, still is, and was of that generation that brought in those sort of changes. But what I feel is that having been, not been brought up in that milieu is that there was um, an expectation that the change had taken place <laughs> and that, that my generation were going to reap the benefits. Mm-hmm. So I, my political awareness was developed because actually that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> of course it was in some ways, yeah. but particularly in the art world, it 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 was pretty obvious that it was still you know very much the archetype of of the artist is still thought to be male, and it still is today. Right. Yeah. So I feel that it, what I like about our times, mm-hmm. good things. Uh, that there's it feels for the first time that there is a reckoning and an acceptance of inequality Mm, of racism mm -hmm. um, of sexism and the experience for many women of what it's like to be a woman Mm. and that it 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 isn't it's it's not equal for for all women and that the economics that we that we construct and we live within that is actually the the biggest determinant yeah and i think that's really it's it's a really good thing that there's mm-hmm. less pretending that that somehow things in fact were were better than they mm-hmm. than they are yeah and i think i think this reckoning too was sort of the early roots of feminism and how specific it was and how it meant you know white educated women that's yeah. who feminism was for and and you know really you know of course leaving out women of color of course leaving out trans women mm. And that now we're really looking back, you know, with less rose-colored glasses yes, yes, <laughs> at, indeed. at the sort of the, at the early progress. But I think also, you know, understanding that it was it was a step forward. But you know, as you as you just said, the work is so not done. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Um, and that it is something that people are talking about and really recognizing that it, it affects every system in which we navigate and every system within the world you know mm. just like I think education housing banking all of it is a part of it and that at least within I was gonna say because it's sort of funny to talk about this way because I you know I want to say it seems to be like almost universally recognized and when somebody says it like it doesn't get 
shot down. You know, it's not like, oh, what are you talking about? But of course, that's within a very specific circles. You yeah. know, it's within the arts. It's within progressive circles, and you know, there are still there are still women who don't even want to use the word feminism to describe themselves or feminists to describe themselves because mm. they think that you know it's you, you hear this like well i'm not a feminist i don't hate men mm. you know as mm. if that's mm. like sort of if that's the way it's defined for them in their eyes of course which is it's so much more complex than that but i think i think that's that's another thing too is to then couch the term feminism mm-hmm. in other terms because of course they that's what the critics of equality that's what they've cleverly done mm. is that you you demonize something you simplify you make it seem to be about you know hating men mm-hmm. um rather than uh, women having equal opportunities being able to you know have an autonomous life to not be judged for the choices they're making so if you if you talk to women and and put to them and say well well what you you don't want to have the opportunity to go to university mm-hmm. or have a job or, or just have choices mm-hmm. and then they they would of course i presume yes yeah, <laughs> really what are you talking yeah what mm-hmm. do you mean so um i think it's that conversations are often left at a very sort of simplistic level mm-hmm. and that you need to have it's a discussion where you actually need to say well, well what do you think that means Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, fortunately, a lot of younger women have benefited from the changes in, in affluent countries and so on. And the idea of losing those things, mm. that they, would, they quite rightly would find that very upsetting. So, so they need to understand that, that the loss is, it, the potential's there. Yeah. And that's what's frightening is, you, you know, I made an assumption that there were certain things that could never go backwards. And yet, you know, like in America, that that um, women can't seek a termination mm-hmm. in certain areas and, and, and moves against access to that sort of health care. Mm-hmm. And, and you have groups in Australia who also go and harass women at clinics and so on and so forth. And it's, it's shocking mm-hmm. that you realise that, that that society is always, there are always going to be people who, for whatever reason, religious or otherwise, um, that if they have power, that they will exercise that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, we have very conservative media. And so where are we going, where, where do you, what voices are we listening to? Mm. And where do you hear those other voices? And that's another problem too, is that we are kind of living in these bubbles of, opinions that reflect our own right and it's really important to be open to what else is going on so you actually do understand the complexity mm-hmm. and also do be confronted with other opinions because yeah. I, I don't really want to i don't want to just be with people who who have the same views as me it's it's good to to talk to to people and and listen to how they see the world and um, be challenged. Yeah, yeah, and I think that to be able to take on the that challenge without immediate anger and yes. reaction, because I think that's when things shut things down. And you know, my, you know, one of my favorite people in the world to talk politics with is a friend I've had for two decades, who's a Republican. Mm. Yeah, just certainly not a Trump Republican. You know, he's he's a Republican who's like Trump's ruining 
my party, but um, so basically he's not insane is what I'm trying to say. So, um, but you know he's you know he's like you know fiscally conservative, you know more so more traditional Republican. Mm. And while I don't agree generally with a thing that he says. Mm. It's fascinating to debate with him yeah. because I think part of it is we have such a solid friendship foundation. Mm. You know, I was the best man at his wedding. You know, like we were very, very close. And so we don't have a fear of offending or of ruining a friendship, I think, over it. But anyway, I think it's, um, you know, it's so important to have people in your life who you can have the civil discussions with yeah. because it, it keeps you questioning your own beliefs which i think is yes. good yeah um and hopefully it lets you help them question theirs you know indeed well when i was catching the train to megalo and i sat next to a tourist an american woman oh. and we had a very interesting discussion about um sports people taking the knee because mm. she didn't agree hmm. she didn't feel that they should exercise that political view and we had a very civilized discussion <laughs> And I, and, and I asked her because I thought, well, you know, I, I have my perspective from Australia, mm -hmm. but what's hers? And, um, yeah, so she felt that it was – well, she had an interesting take on it. She said she felt that, that they were employed, in a sense, to be sports people, that that, oh, wasn't, yeah, yeah. that wasn't the mm -hmm. place. And then she also said that she felt what else were they doing in their lives with that? Mm. platform mm -hmm. that they had so it was sort of saying if if it was consistent with their other actions mm. then so whether that's a rationale I'm not quite sure but it was but we certainly had a very interesting discussion and very open and genuine I was like well what do you think why do you think that yeah and I I hesitated when she said she didn't <sighs> think that they should do it and I, and I thought no I think mm -hmm. I can I can have a civilized discussion, and I said, "Well, I'm, I you know I don't agree with that." Mm -hmm. And and actually, I listened to a very interesting discussion on Radio National a year ago or so, and it was about sports people should they use that platform, and um, and one of them was saying, one of the people said, "Well, that that there's a story about a couple and." You know, the husband says, oh, you know, you're going to get up and get the breakfast or something. The point being is that everything is political. Hmm. So to so to imagine that you can somehow separate, oh, yeah, right. sport, life, and then politics, it's no. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. And I think also that the, that the ability to sort of disengage with the political is a huge place of privilege. Mm. You know, in order to be like, oh, I, I doesn't need to be political. I don't get to be political. Why does everything have to be political? And it's like, well, if you don't have to worry about your teenage boy just being shot in the street mm. randomly by a police officer, mm. then yes, of course you can say, mm. why, do, why, why would you want to get, why would you want to get so ugly and political about mm. it? If you, if, if, if you can just live your life knowing that all the systems are in place mm. to support you, yeah. you know? So it's, I, I, every time people are like, oh, why does it have to get political? I'm like, I'm like, do you realize like how amazingly privileged you are to be able to disengage and not think about these things on a daily basis mm. to the point where you can get kind of annoyed by it. Yes. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, where yeah. politics can just be like a little mosquito in your ear. Mm. It's like, yeah, well, that's, that's because you are safe within these systems. Yeah. You know? I, think, I think also, though, that people, you know, they're not always comfortable 
and also they're not I don't think if you're not in the habit of talking about ideas and mm -hmm. talking about your views that I do feel that people are not are not confident and yeah. it's it's a way of avoiding trying to articulate what your thoughts are because it's only through discussion that that you you sometimes hear what you think yourself absolutely yeah so I I, I mean it's not to, I'm not saying that that it excuses people but I think the whole thing about talking and talking about ideas and also that there's the history that it's you you know you shouldn't talk about sex you shouldn't talk about money you shouldn't talk about politics mm -hmm. <laughs> and you think and why was that what, what, mm -hmm. what were those rules about because it is about people not being asked about their privilege sometimes mm -hmm. um, so, sort of being safe in the knowledge that they can just carry on with, with whatever they're doing um, whereas if you say, well, how much do you earn? Right. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like, well, is that necessarily a bad thing? Because mm -hmm. in fact, it's shocking when people find <laughs> out what their colleagues earn sometimes. Yeah. And it's very illustrative of, in right. fact, the, the sort of power structures and so on mm -hmm. that are in play that you didn't know about. Yeah. And where you fit into the hierarchy. Oh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like I want to just like dive into like all of my, you know, capitalist conspiracy theories okay. at this point, but <laughs> but we can do that over lunch. <laughs> so before we, we run out of recording time, yeah. I had a question for you because I know that your work is about, you know, people and place and language and these are, I feel like, in, in, in borders and in this case, you know, immigration. And all of this has been affected by COVID-19 mm. dramatically, like mm. the words that we use, yeah. you know, I mean, our daily vernacular has been evolving. The way we travel has been evolving. Who, who is considered what part of what country and what kind of benefits or lack thereof should they get? And it's been interesting for me as a non-Australia living in Australia, yeah. you know, like I'm not eligible for JobKeeper, you know, for yes. instance, this sort of thing. Yeah. So... So I feel like it must have been something on your mind and it must be influencing your practice a bit or maybe how you're thinking about what you're making or maybe it's all too early to process, but it just seems like your practice specifically is really about some of the deepest things that we've seen change in the last six months. Mm. Yeah. Well, as, as we've spoken about, I, I think that um, a lot of good things have come to the mm -hmm. surface and that Australia uh, and other countries are, are actually grappling with the challenges of, well, well really, there's no, there is no choice. You, you can't let, in Australia at least, the sense is you can't let the economy completely collapse. Mm -hmm. You have to support people. And so then that has brought out that bigger discussion about what about the living wage? You know, how, how have right. we structured society? Who, who benefits from the current structures? So personally, COVID, you know, the lockdown, I mean, initial sort of fear and anxiety and too much reading of the news. Mm -hmm. But um, I think as an artist as well, I'm accustomed to being on my own mm. and, and working in my studio is that it allowed for that more. So I was able to just focus on things and also because I was finishing this project and fortunately um, the things that I relied on 
one of the printers for the digital prints, he, he I could, couldn't go to his studio anymore and so everything had to be posted, but that was okay. So I, I didn't suffer in that sense and was able to then focus on resolving things and, um, and the framing. So there was a, was a sort of halt, but actually a, a rethinking of what I was doing. And one of the things too is that I think a lot of people did that and on Instagram, and there were a number of galleries and artists who, who let go of projects mm. um, and opened them up to other people. So I, I've actually participated in a number of things that have been about. One of them was a, a reflection on t- life under COVID. Actually, in fact, two were. So, it's, so it sort of changed the landscape in many ways. And I mean, in a sense, was your question partly about were things in the project can I see them it at play now? Is that part of your question? I think it, yeah. I mean, I think it's just sort of whatever, however you exactly wanted to interpret it. Because I think I was wondering if more, if you've had a shift at all in the way you've been thinking about these ideas, because they've, while they always sort of brew underneath mm. the surface, yes. this has brought everything yes, it's true. up. And yeah. so... Um, that can sometimes change perspectives or inspire or mm-hmm. anything like that. So yeah, yeah. well, yes, well, it, it has, it's given me uh, a bit of a sense of urgency mm-hmm. and it's, it's actually been good in the sense that it's, it's made me feel like there's not time to waste. Yeah. And, and that as, because things are changing so quickly. So one of the, the things I was part of was Australian Design Centre sent out a journal to 100 artists and designers to put down their thoughts and impressions mm. and whatever, whatever we wanted over a four-week period. And, uh, and I don't keep a diary normally. I've got lots of workbooks. And so that was very interesting because it was charting both what I was doing and what I was thinking. Mm. And, uh, and then, of course, you read back in, your, in one's diary and then you, oh, right, you know, that, mm. that's what was happening. So it, it's, it feels like a, a greater consciousness about what's happening. And because I am interested in the news and I read The New Yorker and I have a friend who lives in New York and so I feel like there's information coming from lots of things. Yeah. And because this is a global issue, it, it's brought the world and people's experiences closer together. So I feel more connected. And I've also made work um, specifically about those reflections. Mm-hmm. So there's a work here, two works in Canberra. Uh, so it's sort of crystallized certain things. Um, it's, en- it's been energizing. Yeah. 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 Good, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so before we sign off entirely, can you let people know about your current exhibitions or any upcoming exhibitions as much as we can plan for the future um, in this day and age? And then also where people can find you and see your work and all of that. Okay. Uh, well, the exhibition Dreams of Another Life at the Mildura Arts Centre uh, will be up um, by the 23rd of July mm-hmm. and it will be on until September 2020. And um, so Mildura is just across the border in Victoria. Mm. And the reason that I'm not there installing it is because of the lockdown mm-hmm. between New South Wales and Victoria because they've had a big outbreak. Um, so, so that's a major thing for me. Um, and then I'm hoping to tour that 
And so what I need to do is organise documentation and then send that out mm -hmm. to find other venues to show it uh, around Australia. And then there's my website, which mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at keeping up to date. <laughs> and that's just www.myname. Um, Instagram, mm -hmm. uh, that, that includes work and, you know, as Instagram does, mm -hmm. stuff. Um, and is that just at Pia Larson? At uh, yes, Larson? yes. Uh, it's um, uh, at Pia Larson underscore, um, no, Pia underscore Larson three underscores. Okay. Yes. I'll put a link in the yeah, show notes yeah, to it yeah. all as well, of course. Um, and then I have, you know, submissions for, for next year, but as you say, it's an unknown and I'm waiting to hear and also I've been waiting for this exhibition to to really come to fruition yeah. um, before I can turn my mind to making submissions. So there are, there are things in the pipeline, um, there's work I want to make but there's nothing I can share concretely. Yeah. Well they can they can follow you on the, the socials indeed, to get to all that. So, yes. yeah. yeah. Well, Thank you again for joining me. I, it's always a delight to chat <laughs> about everything. Um, so yeah, thank you so much. And um, I'll just be in touch as the podcast coming out and all of that. So. Thank you, Miranda, for the yeah. invitation. Well, that's our show for this week. Join me again next week with PCL's first repeat guest in our two-year history. We'll be very happy to welcome back Ali Norman, who, since we last talked, has taken on a lithography studio and opened a community shop and creative learning space in Tampa, Florida, right in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So believe me when I say you won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing help from Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week. Thank you.